All right, y'all, we are back for another episode, and I'm so excited. Today, we're going to be talking all about executive functions and what those are and really thinking about how they apply to your autistic child. I am so excited to be able to have Dr. Abby Jones on the podcast. She is a licensed psychologist and a school psychologist who dedicated her PhD program to learning all about executive functionings, her dissertation, was on this. Actually, I found her through TikTok and then slid into her Instagram DMs and was like, okay, I want to chat. I want to pick your brain. And I was like, I think we need to be friends. And so that is how all of this evolved. And I'm so excited to be able to learn from her today. In the show notes, I do have her TikTok link. So definitely go follow her because you're going to get so much more information about executive functioning because she's constantly educating about it. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast, and I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well-being as a parent, supporting your non-autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. So welcome. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you. This is so exciting. It is so exciting. So I know I just gave you a little bit of an intro, but tell us a little bit about you and more details about how you got into focusing on executive functionings and why you think it's important, too. My gosh, I'm obsessed with it. My journey started, I don't know, I guess a little bit differently than others. I was a teacher before I went back to school to become a psychologist. And what happened for me was I was a young teacher and I had a neurodivergent child in my classroom. I taught middle school. And as he was sitting in his desk, I realized I absolutely do not have the education or the background or the understanding of how to teach this child effectively. But like everybody else, he deserved an education and to learn. And so I kind of went on a journey to figure out how can I help this child? How can I understand his IEP? What am I not doing that I should be doing? And then the opposite of that, what am I doing too much of or too little of? And ultimately, that just led me to talking to special education teachers and talking to the school psychologist. Short story long, went back to school and now I can't get enough of it. Now I can't quit learning about neurodevelopment and trajectories and how we can meet those and in interventions. And I pride myself on teaching parents how to do this type of stuff at home in the real world. Yeah. And you make it so digestible. I know about this, but it's not my area of expertise. But I like sit there and I'll watch your like TikTok videos and be like, oh, that's genius. I appreciate that. There's just there's so much contention in in this world about what it is and what it's not and what it should look like. But that's not useful. Let's take what we do understand and make it usable for the people who need it and continue to grow and accept that what is true today might not be true in 10 years, but as long as we're doing the best we can with what we have, then you can sleep at night, right? 
Yeah. Wow. That's such a good point too, is there are so many unknowns and we can get stuck in those unknowns. And it's like, how do you best support your child with the information that we have right now? I love that. So can you just define executive functioning for us or executive functions? Yeah. Can I get a little nerdy first? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So to understand what executive functioning is, you first have to understand just like this much of neuroanatomy. So the basics, how does the brain develop? So the brain develops from the back to the front, from the inside out. So scientists and the general public were all just super fascinated by how this works. And it influences things like legal policy and education policy. So legally think like how are teens and late adolescents getting life sentences for something, some crime that they committed when this part of their brain, right, back to front, isn't even done developing yet. And that is where executive functioning is housed, way up here, very last part of your brain to develop. So again, lots of tension in the literature about when that actually is, but generally you're 25 to 30 before your brain is actually done creating itself. And then after that, you can still prune and change the way your brain looks on MRI scans all the way up until death. Yeah. No, that part is the very last part to develop what is executive functioning. And just real quick, because they can't see you, you're pointing to the front of your brain for the podcast. If they're watching on YouTube, they can see and get all the cool visuals. But she's literally pointing like basically to in between her eyebrows to her forehead. Yeah. If you could point right through in between your eyebrows or your lovely unibrow would be, that's the last part. And that's where your executive functioning is housed. So executive functions are really like a marriage between neuroanatomy and neuropsychology. It's your prefrontal cortex. The very last part of your brain is your prefrontal cortex. Your prefrontal cortex is in charge of this concept called executive functions. Executive functions are just a big list of skills that we would expect the mature adult brain, the healthy adult brain to be able to do. Ranges from things like response inhibition, emotional control, sustained attention, organization, flexibility. They're just these brain-based skills housed in the prefrontal cortex to do life. Wow. Yeah. I love thinking about it. So For a parent listening then, they're like, okay, my kid's prefrontal cortex isn't developed yet. Does that mean they don't have any executive functioning then? No, it doesn't. That's a really good question. Inside out also exists, right? So your brain starts at the very inside and then as you age, the outside becomes more developed. But the very outside, your cerebellum is in charge of talking between these different neural networks. So the order is important though. Metacognition or the ability to think about the way you think is a adult skill. You cannot expect a child to think about the way they think. They are not going to be able to get into like deep dive conversations. I was raised in this racist Midwest town, but now I understand the bigger global impact of that. No, that's a thinking about the way we think and the way we were raised and why we think in certain patterns type skill. They're not going to have that. One of the first like foundational EF skills to develop is impulse control. Now that It's closer to the limbic system, right? So your sensory responses, your feelings, how you react to things like tags in clothes, that we can expect them to have. And that's a direct skill that can be taught. So what age would you say a neurotypical child starts having that specific executive function? Early, toddlerhood, right? 
So you can teach a toddler to not, I did a video about this, to not stick their foot in their cottage cheese, but that's just a task of impulse control. The video I'm talking about got me a lot of hate. (laughs) (laughs) But what I was trying to do was teach my child that it's okay to be curious about the way that cottage cheese might feel on his foot, but it's not okay to actually stick your feet in your food. And so he was able at age two to learn that strict response of impulse control. But it's a forever learned thing. Like you and I are still learning how to inhibit our automatic responses, even in times like like this conversation. I want to ramble on and on, but I'm trying to say, quiet Audi. <laughs> exactly. Or I love giving my opinion on things, like not always giving my opinion. Sometimes I do it too much, right? That means it's a failure of my impulse control, but you also learn and it's a continual skill that keeps evolving and developing. Let's name some of the other early ones that come on board and about what ages we see those come on. Okay. So it's hard to say what ages because it truly is absolutely individualized and broken up by things like gender and even like cultural norms. So I'd rather kind of stick, steer away from that and instead think in general concepts like toddlerhood, early childhood. That's perfect. Okay. Yeah. So toddlers can learn response inhibition. They're never going to master it. Toddlers can learn some parts of emotional control. Don't hit your sister. Early childhood, they should be able to not master. Again, we're not mastering until we're full adults, but early childhood can certainly learn sustained attention over time and small tasks of like organization. Keep your room clean. Put your laundry away, understanding where your pants go, in what drawer. And you can start that even earlier. Teens, adolescents, they can learn flexibility. So understanding that multiple things can be true at once. They can learn goal-directed persistence, setting out a specific goal and mapping how to get there. That's definitely an adolescent skill. Our children are going to struggle more with that. Working memory, so small chunks of information held at a time. That's really specific examples throughout the lifespan, all different varying degrees. You can start as early as you want, but a teenager is going to master that more clearly and specifically and intentionally than a child. Planning and prioritization, that's an adolescent skill. Stress tolerance, gosh, that I'm still working on that one. If you could maybe give me some lessons. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. No, and it's. I think it's helpful to also take a step back. There's so much information, I think, on social media about parenting. And is this actually informed by what we know developmentally kids can do? And making sure we're tempering our expectations for any child. What is their brain actually able to do? And I think what we're seeing is I don't know if you feel like this, but I feel like sometimes we're seeing this like progression of skills where we're trying to make kids be able to do things and expect that out of them before maybe neurodevelopmentally we'd expect them to be able to. What are your thoughts on that? Oh my gosh, you hit the nail on the head. So I go through periods where I'm obsessed with certain authors on the topic at a time. And right now my obsession is the Smart but Scattered series. And that's something I definitely recommend for your listeners. She has a child version. She has a teen version of Smart to Scattered, the series. And she talks a lot about this concept of parents kind of expecting their children to have the same executive functioning skills that they have. 
executive functions, remember, that's just a big fancy way to say cognitive skills, right? And we can't possibly expect your prefrontal cortex to look the same as my prefrontal cortex. And instead, we need to focus on teaching the direct skill deficit. How do you teach a skill deficit? Well, you can't teach anything until you actually understand what the deficit might be. So Peg Dawson, in, in her Smart But Scattered series, she kind of lays out these fundamental skills. And she sends parents on a journey in her book to understand what is my skill deficit? What is my child's skill deficit? What do I struggle with? What do they struggle with? What false expectations am I putting on my child because my own misunderstanding of why aren't they good at this? I'm good at this. They're my child. I expose them to it every day. It's like unfair expectations that we put on others. Yeah. Or I, I don't know if she goes into this, but I also almost think the opposite too of like with a parent if that's your deficit. So say, for example, your working memory where things you're trying to update your grocery list and then you go to the grocery store and you forget the most important thing that you needed for a recipe, then sometimes that misstep can almost be misplaced where you're angry about that and your own shortcomings, but then you end up yelling at your kid in the grocery store or like on the way home because they're doing something, which also brings in emotion regulation, emotional control as well. But I also think that can happen quite a lot too. Yeah. And because executive functions are like this interplay between neuroanatomy and psychology, we have to also understand back to front development. You can't executive function. You can't do life on purpose, controlled, goal oriented stuff until you're regulated. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I'm dysregulated in that grocery store, I'm not even making sense to my teen. All my teen knows is I'm yelling at them. They don't understand why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So true. Let's talk a little bit about executive functions and autism. What do we know as a field on executive functions in autism or what are things clinically you commonly see? Real quick, just a brief interruption because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. So there's three umbrellas for all of those skills that we mentioned earlier. There's working memory, there's cognitive flexibility, and there's inhibitory control. And each of the skills fall under these umbrellas. With autism, very stereotypically, we're talking about a cognitive flexibility deficit. So we're rigid thinking patterns. We're stuck in our ways of doing things. And disruptions to our patterns, our routines are very upsetting. So again, this is incredibly stereotypical, but that is a pattern that's commonly seen with autistic folks. And those are just skills. Those are skills that can be taught. Now, that person may not ever like doing those things, but that's okay, right? We all have to do things we dislike all the time. They're still good skills to have. Yeah. I like this idea of thinking about them as umbrellas. This is an interesting one then to think about, this idea of impulse control, 
Is it, and we might not know this answer, so I might be just like throwing it out there, but is it impulse? So if a kid blurts something out in class, for example, is that an impulse control situation? We can definitely think of it that way. Or is it a difficulty understanding the social cueing that right now you should be raising your hand instead of blurting something out? And maybe an hour ago, it was a game where everyone was throwing out answers. So how do we know if it's like a executive functioning deficit or more a deficit that is specific to autism? Or do we just think it's one mishmash picture? That's an awesome question. Okay, so autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder. I think we can agree on that. And so that means that some stuff in their neuroanatomy is going to develop later than other people, or it might be more difficult to develop at all. But let's take that blurting example, right? So of the three umbrellas, working memory, inhibitory control, and cognitive flexibility, there is an order, a generalized order. Inhibitory control has to develop before working memory can develop, before cognitive flexibility can develop. Wow. I actually didn't know that. So it's, that's well stop. And pick up my research, which is fairly recent. Is, I'm 35 years young. Well, compare that to Peg Dawson's research, and we might not agree on each other. But anyway, inhibitory control has to develop first, right? So that blurting example, I would say it doesn't matter so much that the child understands why it's not acceptable, and more that they understand how their lack of inhibition disrupts the class. That we can teach. We can teach that child to understand the concept that each time they blurt, they're disrupting the class. They can even put a timer out, and the teacher can show them, this is how much time we had to use on that blurt. I want to reduce that time from 10 minutes of class period to five minutes of class period. If we can do that, we taught you a skill, we helped the class, we won today. Later on, what you're describing is metacognition, right? That social cue part, that's not done. That's not even close to done brewing in that child's brain. So maybe don't don't pick that battle yet. That's interesting to really think about. Yeah, because neurotypical kids, it's easy to be like they understand the social rules around this, but really they might just understand the rules of impulse control. That's exactly right. And I think, oh, man. Middle school. Middle school's a big old train wreck, right? So even in middle school, those neurotypical kids don't actually understand social rules. <laughs> yeah. That is so true. Yeah. I would go back for all the money in the world. <laughs> no, I agree. Oh. Yeah. All the hormones are raging too, which doesn't help the situation either. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now I want to like deep dive a little bit more. So it's inhibitory control or impulse control, then working memory, then cognitive flexibility. So can we go through some examples of how this may show up for an autistic child? Inhibitory control. Inhibitory control is your ability to just resist automatic response. So examples, they might be things like that impulsive responding to sit down when you're expected to sit down to Listen to the teacher speaking despite this train blaring outside of the window or your peers talking in class. You're resisting the urge to shh all the time. It's interesting to hear you describe that because it almost feels like on the surface what we'd call attention, the ability to attend to what they're supposed to be attending to. And I think that's what's really interesting with autistic individuals is sometimes attention is there. They're just not attending to what we want them to. 
So that also might be a form of where inhibitory control isn't there. So for example, oh, and we're going to dive more in in a future episode to ADHD as well, but it's okay. A train comes blaring by. I actually wouldn't be surprised if one comes blaring by any minute here because they come by my apartment all the time. But for a kid that has ADHD, which could be co-occurring with autism, that might just be distracting. It gets them off task. But I think for an autistic child, what if they love trains? And then all of a sudden, they're thinking about everything that they know about trains. It's like attention is actually still there. It's just not on the quote-unquote desired, like the desired thing, the thing we are desiring for them. They have the desire to think about the train. We want them to focus on what the teacher is asking in class. So I think that's an example that kind of comes to mind there. There are some creators who I love who talk about the twin disorders, ADHD and autism, and man, they are. And I hate that we even tease things out the way we do, specifically for diagnostic purposes. If we could just call all of these things executive functioning deficits, I think that would be so much more beneficial, frankly, because we can narrow it down. So attention is absolutely an aspect of inhibitory control. Selective, which is what we're describing, pay attention to the train or my teacher, and sustained. How long can I pay attention to my teacher? How quickly can I look away from that train and listen to my teacher again? Selective and sustained attention is 100% an aspect of inhibitory control. It is absolutely an executive function. And still, it's a skill that can be directly taught. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. And it, it requires is. some motivation and some effortful control on the part of the listener. And that's okay. We still fight the good fight. We teach the skill that we want to see. Absolutely. Yeah. I also think that this idea of it all being executive functioning disorders is really interesting because some of it is we know executive functioning deficits happen in autistic children. We also know that they happen in children with ADHD. There's varying opinions. There was actually a TikTok video going around where A psychologist from another country said that everyone with autism had ADHD, and I don't think that is true. I'd say the majority of autistic individuals probably have some sort of executive functioning dysfunction, but it's really interesting to think about in some ways, too, how we are parsing it apart when it is something that we know needs targeted intervention to be able to help them progress. Yeah. And okay, so two two parts. One is if you just look at the DSM, which for better or worse, right now in our world, we have to, right? Right. So if you just look at the DSM, executive functions are spelled out in both diagnoses. Like you can't diagnose unless you identify executive dysfunction in each of those. Right. However, they're absolutely two totally different things. Not only with what area of the brain is primarily affected, but also how you treat it. Yeah, it's clearly not the same thing, but are they twinsies sometimes? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's not saying two twins are the same. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know why my brain wandered to eyebrows there, where it's like you want them to be sisters and not twins when you fill in your eyebrows. Have you ever heard that? No, tell me. What is it? Like when you fill in your eyebrows, like doing your makeup, you're not supposed to try to make them perfect or you'll never get them there. And I don't know why that came to mind right now. <laughs> I love that. I stole one of your words the other day when I was speaking to someone. I said something. I, oh, I, oh, I said multi-passionate entrepreneur. I think that is it for people like you and me. It's like I am interested in 17 different things and I'm deeply interested and you can't make me stop. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, I love that. 
Look at us. We're not using our executive functionings right now to stay on topic, but I absolutely love it. No, the next one. Yeah. Let's see you do Oh, that. wait. I had one more example before we yeah. go there because it made me also think of this, the impulse control. So sometimes what we'll see is autistic kids, which goes with rigidity, but being rule followers, but then having difficulty realizing that you can't correct other people, for example. That's an example of impulse control is not coming in to be able to process through, okay, not only do I like it this way, that's some rigidity, but also like I can't be correcting everyone else, even if they don't do it like I like it done. And even breaking down what you just described further might be helpful too, like depending on the age and the... Mm not maturity, that's not the right word, but, or maybe biological maturity of the person. So we don't teach the social part yet because that person might not be able to understand that yet, not until adolescence. Even a typically developing person might not be able to. But yeah, the inhibitory control, teach yeah. that first because it's, unless we can inhibit automatic response, it's really hard to do anything else. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Okay, let's go into the next one. Okay, working memory. Working memory is one of those last to develop skills, not after cognitive flexibility, but like generally speaking, last to develop skills and first to start to decline with age. So it's one that when I'm working with like geriatric population that I really stress because it is so incredibly malleable. Working memory, as far as like if we were to stick you in an MRI machine and teach you a bunch of stuff and then measure it again in six months, it would be the one that lights up differently because it's pretty easy to understand and it's pretty easy to intervene on. So working memory is your ability to take a short amount of information and hold it in your brain long enough to do something useful with it. So for me, that might be if you tell me your phone number, I repeat it long enough to write it down and then put it in my phone. And then it's, it's permissible for it to be gone. But the problem arises when I cannot inhibit my attention long enough, you get midway through and oh, a squirrel. Right. And that's becomes a real problem. But when you can master working memory, your world lights up differently. And it can be as simple as like ripping off a piece of paper and writing a quick note to yourself. But yeah. learning to do that takes some time and takes some real, real focused attention. Yeah. I think also one of the examples then that comes to mind for me is like overloading kids with directions, like giving them five directions and then feeling frustrated where it's like, why are you staring at your shoes right now? And it's because that information has dropped out of their working memory. And it's this whole thing in the autism field right now. There is this topic of, okay, is my kid being defiant? And I often find that it's not defiance. It's either some sort of executive functioning deficit or emotion dysregulation that's coming into play. PDAs becoming something we're hearing a lot more about in the U.S., which is the technical name of it is pathological demand avoidance. There's a whole thing about not calling it that because yeah. it sounds very pathologizing, basically going into fight or flight mode when you're told to do all of these things. But I just think it's interesting in general to take this step back that when your kid isn't following through on directions, right, we want to jump to why aren't they listening to me? Why are they trying to disobey me? But there's so many other things that could be going on. And executive functioning is a huge part of this, particularly working memory. 
Isn't it funny how we are so hesitant to use PDA, that acronym, the, I'm just going to say it, the real ones, yeah. <laughs> but we're not hesitant to say ADHD and EF dysfunction and all of that. It's like the narrative that is being pushed is so picky and choosy where we can even have pride in our ADHD diagnosis. But I don't know. I just I don't like these narratives of good or bad or even changing to make something sound better. I think everything is a skill. Everything is a skill and most yeah. skills that can be taught. Yeah, I think it's coming. Going. <laughs> yeah, I think it's coming from, though, this idea in general of neurodiversity and learning to accept that we aren't trying to like make it feel as stigmatized. But I do think PDA is this really interesting one because it came so strongly from autistic adults in the neurodiversity community that right away they were like, we don't like this name. And I can't even, uh, to be honest with you, I can't even remember the preferred name. The acronym is still PDA. Right for autonomy. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And I always forget it. I got on that, you know, those things that you get on. I got on that one a while ago. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And But I think it is interesting. But I think even just taking a step back, I love what you said about it being a skill. And so regardless of what we call it, it's like, how do we support that skill development? Exactly. How do we support that skill development? So very specifically, you have to be willing to create a list of the executive functions. So Peg Dawson, the author I mentioned earlier, and she's a school psychologist. I think she has her EDD, education doctor, I believe. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. But she has created this list that I found very useful. And I it's either 11 or 13 skills of executive functions. And they range, right, from response inhibition all the way to metacognition. And they include the ones we've talked about, stress tolerance, time management, task initiation, goal-directed attention. So the first thing a parent should do, and hopefully with the, you know, the help of someone like me or you, is have a list in front of them and truly identify these are the skills that my child has not been taught yet. Because until we can say it very clearly and very specifically, we don't understand it at all. So we have to understand what exactly are we trying to do here? And my favorite thing to say is, what do you want? What is the exact thing that we are trying to get to? Until we can laser focus that goal, it's going to be hard to achieve the results that you're asking for us to achieve. So let's laser focus. What's my goal? And then if you want to get real nerdy about it, make a smart goal. <laughs> yeah. Make a smart goal, make it measurable and teach, teach the exact skill deficit. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Let's talk about the cognitive flexibility one last. Just giving some examples. And then I promise we're actually going to circle back around to the intervention side before we wrap this episode up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. Okay. So cognitive flexibility, that's your ability to problem solve in a new situation, to take on a new perspective, to solve a very unique problem. It's your ability to consider a peer's point of view when it's maybe their turn to share or if they're telling you a story. It's also more complex using rules that you learned in one situation and applying them to another to solve a completely different but maybe partially related problem. And it's very much that very tip of your brain skill, but it's something you can practice from a pretty early age. Something I do with my daughter is we practice brainstorming, right? So brainstorming is really just finding lots of different solutions for a problem. So it might be, hey, Christina, I need to get from here to there. Name three ways I can get there. And she can come up with wild ideas. And that's okay because it doesn't matter. My point is not that they 
have to be realistic solutions. They just have to be options. Later on, we can prune that down to, all right, how about in real life? What's the matter? Yeah. I love that point, though, too. The point of this episode isn't to say, oh, these things develop later. Don't worry about them. You can start to practice them. And some of it is where are your expectations? So are you expecting your four-year-old to be able to problem solve a situation? Probably not developmentally appropriate and not neurodevelopmentally appropriate to be able to think of all these different solutions and work through something on their own without parental support. And I do think this cognitive flexibility piece, like we talked at the start of the episode, we do see this as a challenge in autism. It's literally one of the symptoms, difficulties with changes in routine, flexibility, all of that is part of a restricted repetitive behavior. But we also have this concept too, which I haven't touched on in this podcast yet, but this idea of theory of mind, of being able to think about what someone else is thinking about. And there's a research basis in autism saying that is often a deficit that we see. And it makes sense because it folds into this cognitive flexibility piece. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're, they really are twins. Theory yeah. of cognitive flexibility. Okay. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So not being able to understand why someone is upset, being very focused, for example, I was upset and I wanted it this way versus not being able to say, I was upset, I wanted it this way, and my friend wanted it the other way. That's why they're upset and being able then to find a solution. A lot of times it can come across as why is my child, my autistic child, only focused on what they want. It very likely is what oh. we're talking about here. Kind of doubt it is. And even think about the way we measure the quote unquote deficit with those space tasks. Do they yeah. recognize facial expressions? It's uh, yeah. <laughs> everything is broken. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's yeah, but it's true. And you can teach smile means happy. That's just information. People with executive dysfunction, they don't struggle with the knowledge. They struggle with applying and doing and planning and organizing. And that's okay. There's no reason why we can't teach those things. Yeah. Okay. So what would be parents listening to this? I think we've established the majority of autistic kids slash all autistic kids have some sort of executive dysfunction. What are some like intervention approaches that they can seek out that they can work with a therapist on? Or what are some of those go-to things you're recommending? First and foremost, before you do anything else, the person must be regulated before they're able to learn. So if a person is emotional or if their sympathetic nervous system is activated or if they are breaking down, something traumatic just happened, whatever it might be, don't try. Yeah. <laughs> Truly, that is not the time to teach a lesson. So if a person is regulated, then I really want this concept of executive functions being the cerebellum firing in all sorts of different parts of the brain all at once. That's what we're trying to do. And we can do that on purpose by just activating different parts of the brain while we teach the skill. So if we're teaching time management, we are teaching that person to use a clock, but we're doing it physically. We're activating the motor cortex while we teach the skill because those synapses now are firing and pruning and reactivating and changing and creating new pathways that didn't exist before. And that's the ultimate goal. You want long-term change? You got to change the way your synapses look first. To do that, activate lots of different areas of the brain all at once. Use sensory needs in your lesson. The Orton-Gillingham approach to reading is a perfect example. 
Orton Gillingham is a multi-sensory approach to reading. So reading is very much a prefrontal thing, something humans made up. It's not like a part of the animal world. But when we involve the motor cortex, when we involve the occipital lobe, when we involve sensory integration in reading, all of a sudden our synapses realign and it makes sense. So foundational to EF involve different areas of the brain all at once when you're teaching whatever the skill might be. Okay, give some tangibles of that. Sensory balls. Sensory balls, absolutely. Are you learning counting? Use sensory balls. Are you learning multiplication? Use sensory beads. Make it tangible. Make it real. Make it physical. You got to involve your whole body and your whole brain in the learning task. So you could have your child who's having trouble inhibiting his response to blurting put on a treadmill. If you have that child walk while you teach a certain task, they're involving their motor cortex. Now, all of a sudden, it's a lot harder to blurt because their blurting behavior is taken over by the treadmill. Literally, teach a task to the child while they walk on the treadmill. Bonus points if you get the child to do windmills and cross the midline while they're learning the task. Yeah, I know. When we first met, told me about like even just having them like touch their shoulders as they're talking and on the opposite side of their body and playing around with that in session, particularly some of my wiggly kids. I do think this is an important thing to say, though, which relates to executive functioning is often we want kids to follow this very rigid standard where it's sit in your seat, don't play with things like focus on one thing at a time. And for neurodivergent kids, they could be like hopping on one foot, playing with a fidget and learning all at once. And that sometimes actually promotes their learning because of the way that you're describing it. But the other ways that I think of it too, but maybe you can clarify this, is if we're telling them that they need to remain seated or like to stop doing something, then they have to spend their energy and their executive functions, their inhibitory control saying, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing this right now, which is then distracting in the process. Is that accurate? Oh, it's perfectly accurate. And it's that is an executive function, too, that we often see a dysfunction, I should say, that we often see in trauma. Um, especially kids with trauma, they're so stuck in that movement center of their brain in that limbic system. I'm constantly on guard. I'm constantly worried about what might happen next. And that comes out physically. But when we instead regulate the physicality and make it very routine steps, not surprising, uh, it, it just offers a different way to focus. And We're doing it now as adults more than we ever have with these treadmills underneath our desk. And so often the reason you got the treadmill is for your physical health. But then you learn very quickly, oh, my gosh, my attention, my ability to actually do this thing for long periods of time is totally different than it was originally. Absolutely. Okay, one last thing I'm curious to touch on is this idea, and it's an area that I absolutely love as well, but I'd love to hear your perspective on getting your child emotionally regulated in order to be able to learn skills or this idea of working on emotion regulation skills, which is related to executive functionings as well. It's it's both necessary and it's part of the skill set itself. So what are some of your go-tos for working on emotion regulation? I think there's so much power. I know there's so much power just from the research and putting any feeling into language. 
So your ability to define exactly how you're feeling and how it's showing up in your body can be used as a as a teaching moment, right? So I'm feeling really dysregulated right now. The whining has me totally overloaded. I'm going to go take a walk and relax before I come back and we talk about this whining. And then let your child see you choose to go outside and take some deep breaths and to go on a walk rather than what they're going to learn. If you decide to yell, they're going to learn to yell. That's modeling, right? You spoke on this just the other day. Yeah, yeah. You're going to model the behaviors that you show them. So be very conscious about your emotions. And oh, man. And I am like the poster child for a hypocrite right now because I am such an emotionally driven person and I am the first to fly off the handle, good or bad. But it's something I am absolutely working on. And then saying that part out loud too, giving yourself grace, going, man, I got really over emotional just now. That was a big feeling for a not big deal. I'm going to work on that. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how often my seven year old (laughs) said to me, mom, was a really big feeling for not a really big deal. Does it all the time. And I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah. You're not wrong. <laughs> right? But it's like pat on the back. You taught your kid it's okay to recognize that, regulate that, and try it again. I love all of that. And yeah, naming the feeling also validates it in the process. It models it for your child. And I guess if we think of feelings in some ways as a form of energy too, you're actually processing that energy versus keeping that energy pent up inside of your body as well so that you don't end up exploding later over the smallest of things. It helps too, circling back to our talk about movement while you're learning a skill, that energy center, like there's this ball of movement that is needed for learning. And instead of suppressing it, let it go, let it out. You can move while you learn. Why not? Why would you not want to move while you learn? Yeah. Absolutely. I could keep asking you a million questions and go through a million examples, but we actually both have patience to go see. Let's wrap this up. Talk about, though, real quick, how did you start your TikTok and like why did you start it? And what sort of information as well do you share on there? Oh my gosh. Okay. So my TikTok is really centered on like very basic, usable psychoeducation that you can implement at home. That's the what I share. I started off with executive functioning almost exclusively, and I certainly still do that a lot. I would say that's like my bread and butter just because that's where my training is. But as I grow as a psychologist and I become more interested in different ages and different problems that my patients are facing, I find myself doing these deep dives into different subjects. And the point of my TikTok is to share usable stuff that you can do at home that benefits you energetically, like you said, physically and mentally. Real life, tangible stuff that is founded in research. How I started doing TikTok was just like everybody else, my kid dancing on a table to some random clip. And it just, it grew from there. I have a little group behind me who helps me target my videos to reach certain audiences, helps me understand the kind of analytics behind TikTok, which I definitely am still struggling to do. But now my goal is to grow this coaching side of executive functioning and help spread the message that executive functions are not an all or nothing thing. They are things that can be taught. Your brain is flexible. You are not stuck with the cards you've been dealt. And there is there's stuff you can do about your quote unquote dysfunction if you want to. 
Yeah. Oh, I love that. And y'all are going to be amazed when you click over from the link in the show notes to her TikTok. I think I looked earlier today and you're at like 158,000 followers. This is not some like small TikTok account. She, yeah. And people will go off in your comments, but some of it is I love what you say. And it cracks me up and I could probably repeat it in your voice where you're like, I'm a psychologist, but I'm not your psychologist. Yeah, I call it not yours. This is not your here. Disclaimer, disclaimer. I love it. It's an attorney and she's trained me well. It's so great. I love it. But we will link that. And yeah, go find Dr. Abby. Blame Dr. Abby. I love it is how she's branded herself and continue to learn about this topic. And I'm just so glad that you're here today. Thank you so much for your time. And I just have to comment. I love our our side tangents. Like our executive functionings were like not all coming into play, but it also I feel like this is totally our dynamic when we interact. It's like we're like bing, bing and like having so much fun with each other. So you just you know so much. I always say the reason I married my husband is because he knows so much about things I know nothing about. And you know so much about things I know nothing about. So I love just talking to you and connecting and it. It's fun to learn. Learning is fun. I was going to say, I think that's a really important part. And I think finding providers like you and I are where we're willing to say, hey, this isn't my area. Teach me. I want to learn. And we're constantly growing and evolving our knowledge. I think that is so, so important for your child's care team. And we have so much fun doing it. And I love being able to do it with you. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here. And I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye y'all.